Thank you. You can uh, keep your place there in Mark 9. This morning, from this text, I would like for us to consider what Christ says is greatness in his kingdom. Very simply, kingdom greatness. The glory days. Remember the glory days, guys? Back when you really had it? Sometimes, those aren't pictures, I don't think all of us, our glory days would be in black and white. Um, But we all of us, particularly as guys, I would say, we sometimes wish that people around us now, our children even, our, our, our friends, knew how good we really were back in the day. We sometimes, though, we run into trouble when we try to act as if we still had it. And then the next morning, maybe for the next week, we are reminded that we don't still have it. Our bodies are telling us that. The fact is that all of us, maybe glory days or not, that we're uh, still glorying in, we all think this. We want others to appreciate our significance. All of us are really glad to be better than those around us, or at least thought of as better than those around us. Take whatever measure you want to, whether it's athletic ability, you know, for us as guys, sometimes we kind of recall those days and wish other people appreciated that. Maybe it's your net worth. Maybe you personally know that you have really good taste in your interior design, and you kind of like it when other people notice that about you. Maybe taste in clothing. Maybe your spirituality in your clothing choices. Maybe your spiritual knowledge or your rightness about things. Sometimes we can look down on those that are around us thinking, these people don't even realize how significant I am in this particular area. If they only saw me, you know, on the job or in my, in my sweet spot, they would realize I really am pretty great. All of us struggle with that. But thankfully, Christ addresses that sinful tendency that all of us struggle with. Here in this passage, he addresses that, and he addresses that through the lens of the disciples. So before we look at our passage this morning, we're not going to go through all the way to the end of the chapter, that last paragraph, if you will. We're going to be looking particularly at verse 33 down through verse 41. But with this struggle that all of us have, we're going to need God's help to understand and and apply his word that the Spirit has breathed out for us. So let's take a second and ask for his help. Let's pray. Father, you, through your Spirit, breathed out this word for us, and I pray that you would give us a good understanding of it. Would we actually understand what, what the heart of this passage is? And would you give us grace to um, admit uh, the, the truth about us that we need to change? Would you give us grace to apply and um, actually make Christ-like growth in the areas that you would reveal to us through your word by your spirit? We need your help in this, and so we ask for it. We're helpless without you. And uh, we pray together in Christ's name. Amen. In the disciples' day significance was measured by things similar to our day, 
some of the things that we just listed out, maybe, maybe it would have been for the disciples how quickly they could haul in the nets, you know, how strong they were, any number of things. But particularly back then, rank, how you ranked in society or in your community was very significant. And particularly for the Jews, spirituality was a, 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 a measure of significance in their day. A lot of times when we hear the word Pharisee, we immediately think negatively. Maybe that's because we're familiar with the Bible and the Bible had a lot of kind of bad things to say about Pharisees. But in their day, they were actually held in high esteem. Oh, wow, look at how spiritual that person is. Look how many jots and tittles they follow of the law. They're so spiritual, they're even doing things beyond the law. And so that's why it was so shocking then that Christ was so excoriating of them because they were esteemed so highly. And so in their day, what your rank was, what your spirituality was, that affected how significant you were to others. And it's interesting, as we zoom out just a little bit to get the context of this passage, Christ has already told the disciples where true significance in his kingdom was found. Back up to chapter 8 and look at verse 34 and 35 of Mark. Mark 8, 34. Maybe that's a couple of scrolls away or just across the page. Mark 8, 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. And then he goes on to say, how silly to lose this whole world just grasping after the temporary, and then you lose eternity, right? And, 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 and he talks about that. Look at chapter 9, verse 31. Chapter 9, verse 31. He was teaching his disciples, saying... To them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they didn't understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. Christ is just telling them that kingdom significance is found in self-denial, back in chapter 8, and here in chapter 9, in suffering, and then in our passage this morning in particular, we're going to see that kingdom significance is found in serving others. You could say that would be the theme of this passage. Kingdom greatness looks like serving others. But one more bit of context that's going to help us to understand this. Also, zooming out in these same, actually, sections of the chapters that we just looked at, there are three predictions that Christ makes about his coming crucifixion, about the passion, if you want to call it that. Three passion predictions. Look back in chapter 8, verse 31. Notice what Christ is beginning to do. Three passion predictions. 8.31, and he, Christ, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Chapter 9, verse 31, which we just looked at, for he was teaching his disciples the Son of Man. Again, hear this prediction about the coming passion, the coming crucifixion. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. 
Next chapter, chapter 10 and verse 32. Chapter 10 and verse 32. And actually, if you have an English Standard Version, this, this heading kind of reminds us of this. Jesus foretells his death a third time. Verse 32 of chapter 10. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, up, up to the mount, if you will, of Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now, believe it or not, we're going to go back through each of those three things again, and we're going to notice the common response that the disciples have each of those times. Interestingly, the, the disciples' lack of understanding and the presence of their pride is evidenced every single time that Christ says, this is what's going to happen to me. Over against Christ's humility being evidenced in chapter 8, what is the response in verse 32 that particularly Peter, probably uh, mouthing what the other disciples might be thinking, Peter's response to this uh, after Christ says this plainly, verse 32 of chapter 8, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get, the, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter rebukes him, presumably just because Christ is foretelling a not-so-kingly future. I mean, Christ, aren't you the coming king, the Messiah? Like, And we're your, your, your buddies, kind of like, what about this coming kingdom that we get to be a part of? What, what are you talking about? And then he himself gets rebuked. Chapter 9, verse 32. What's the response to Christ's prediction of his crucifixion? They didn't understand the saying. They were afraid to ask him. Chapter 10. James and John have a response. In chapter 9, the response we're going to see this morning is that the disciples, right after Christ says, this is what's going to happen to me, they start discussing who's going to be the greatest. They don't get it. Chapter 10, in verse 32, how do this, how do, uh, I'm sorry, verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he says, what's that? They said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one on your left hand, in your glory. And Jesus says, said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Basically, James and John are saying they, they still think that the kingdom is going to get ushered in and they're going to get to be a part. And so their response to that is, oh, can we sit on either side of you in the kingdom? Like, hey, what's in this for us? So the disciples, they don't understand. They're proud and Christ each time evidences humility in this. So part of the context for the passage that we're looking at this morning in chapter 9 is the disciples' pride and self-focus over against Christ's humility. And what he says is actually truly significant in the kingdom. The first thing that we're going to see, we're going to actually just arrive at in a little bit. But it's this first paragraph that we see, verses 33 through 37. Let's look at it together. Verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, which is on, on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And when he was in the house, this is Christ, 
he asked them. So, 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 okay, whose house is this? Last time he was in Capernaum and was in a house was at the beginning of this gospel. Mark's gospel, verse 29 of chapter 1, it was the house of Simon and Andrew. And notice he doesn't say just in a house that they found to use to meet together. It is in the house. So probably it very well could be Peter's house. We know that Peter had a mother-in-law, so that means he had a wife, maybe he had a family. This is probably Peter's house. And what does he do when he gets in the house? He asks a probing question. What were you discussing on the way? And, and he's gently asking a question, kind of like the parent that knows what's just been up to. They ask the question. They don't need information. They're trying to see how the child is going to respond to that. That's exactly what Christ is doing. And what we see in verse 33 and 34 with Christ's gentle question is this. Christ helps you see your need. He's gently drawing out of you. Do you realize you need to grow in this area? He gently asks a question. What have you been up to, guys? And of course, he knows the answer. He's probing, and it's obvious that it's a, a, a sore spot because verse 35, what's their response? But they kept silent. Why? For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Who was the greatest in what way? The text doesn't actually say. Maybe it was the greatest in the kingdom. We know James and John are actually going to be asking outright for that in chapter 10. Maybe it was the future kingdom's rank and position. Maybe it was, okay, who's really the most effective in ministry? I mean, you saw what I did yesterday, right? I mean, you see how I, you know, did that miracle in Christ's name? Well, yeah, but you didn't see the other day when I was doing this. They could have been talking, telling stories and in a way saying, who's the most significant? Who's the most perceptive? When Christ is asking questions, I always get what he's trying to get out here. The rest of you guys, you don't, you don't get it. Well, maybe it's who's the kindest person. Whatever it is, they're arguing about who is the greatest. And it's a question that we need to ask ourselves that Christ is asking them. How have I been chasing significance? Because that's exactly what they had been doing on the way. Have I been pursuing significance with my coworker, my friends, trying to show how I actually am better in this particular area? Maybe it's my parents. Maybe it's my brothers and sisters in Christ here in our church. They need to see how special and gifted I really am. And so I'm going to figure out ways, maybe not obvious, but kind of subtle ways to demonstrate my superiority in this particular area, my spirituality in this particular gift. Did they notice how much I was serving? Did they notice how busy I am about ministry in the church? There's something in all of us that wants to be noticed as significant in whatever context we find ourselves. Maybe you're trying to find significance even to God himself. Wanting him to like you more based on how crazy busy you are about ministry. Thinking that you'll earn a, a righteousness with him that has actually already been earned by Christ on the cross. That's what James and John would later do, right? You know, we're pretty special, so could you give us a good position someday because of how good of servants we are? Christ helps you see your need. Let him ask you that probing question and actually take the time to think about it. How have I been vying for significance in obvious or not so obvious ways? And then in verse 35 to 37, 
Christ helps you see the actual goal. What is the goal here? He shows me my problem. What then should this really look like in my life to not be seeking to be the greatest? Verse 35, and he sat down and called the 12. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Okay, guys, I know you were vying to be the greatest, but here's what you ought to be arguing for, what you ought to be striving for. Now, this isn't, you know, if anyone be, be first, he must be last of all. This isn't manipulative parenting, right? Listen, Johnny, if you'll behave all morning, I'll take you to McDonald's this morning. And so all you're doing is giving them what they want. You're feeding their selfishness. They're not being good because they're trying to please God and because they know that that's the right thing to do. They're being good because they want McDonald's, okay? That's not what Christ is doing. Like, hey, here's some highly effective habits so that you can be a success in life. Not so that you can actually help people, but so that you can ultimately get what you want. That's not what he's doing. But he's also not d downplaying the pursuit of achievement and, 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 of, and of bettering themselves. It's not as if you should try to be the least productive worker in your business. No, C good Christians are going to try to be as successful as they can. It's not wrong to try to climb a ladder or to pay, maybe earn more money to be able to help God's kingdom better or to be able to provide better for your family. That's a good thing. That's something that is notable. It's not saying that we shouldn't pursue, pursue a position of authority in government. Position and power can be used for good. Christ elsewhere says it's just a matter of how you use that. Don't use your authority to lord it over the others, as was common in that day. He's not downplaying the pursuit of significance in terms of position. However, as one commentator says, Jesus does not exactly repudiate prominence and greatness, but he redefines them. What really is significance? The challenge is to be great in things that matter to God. Well, what mattered to God? Christ says it right there in verse 35. Being last of all and servant of all. This is the same word that we see elsewhere in the New Testament for the word deacon, diakonos. One who would wait at table in New Testament times. One who meets others' needs and is always waiting to do that and ready to do that, no matter how menial or gross or unflattering the need to be met is. Servant is that of one who serves and meets needs. But he says not just to be a servant, but servant of all. Not just the servant of the king, of the significant person, because sometimes there's, there's a lot to gain by serving a powerful person. You get to be close to really cool stuff and really significant things. So you have people chasing prominence by being close to powerful people. Oh, look at me, I'm serving. Well, you're just serving for your own selfish gains. But he says servant of all. Well, what do you mean, Jesus, by saying that? He answers the question and he actually gives a nice little illustration. Verse 36. Servant of all looks like this. And he took a child. Maybe it's Peter's child. Peter's crazy three-year-old. I don't know. And he put him in the midst of them. 
So he's going to picture serving all by taking a little child. Now, what was a child in that context? In that day, a child was not the one who should be catered to, told to follow his or her dreams, right? Told to be true to oneself. And, and we're going to double check with our child to make sure that your meal preferences are catered to. We're going to give them all the options, and if they don't like those, we'll run to the store and make sure that your needs are met. That was not the way children were viewed and treated in this day. No, a child was little and insignificant and low in the pecking order. That's the person that Christ takes and puts in the middle of this discipleship discussion. Now, what's he going to say? He, and then he, then he scoops him up, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, with this little fellow or this little girl, now, what, what do you think he's going to say? Elsewhere, he's, he, he, he scoops up a little child, and he says, you need to be humble and have the faith of a little child to be part of the kingdom. That is true, but that's not what he's getting at here. In verse 37, he, he, he says, okay, now I'm going to tell you what's going on here with this illustration of almost the most insignificant and helpless in our society. Verse 37, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Instead, he's saying, be like me, disciples, who embrace and serve the seemingly insignificant. What can a child do to, to repay Jesus for his kindness and playing with him or, to, you know, having a little fun time or encouraging him about obeying his dad? Little things like that. G the, the child has, can do nothing. He can't pay him back. He can't do any sort of kindness back to him. There's nothing in it to gain by serving someone that is so insignificant and helpless and unable to repay the kindness. There's no way that the kid can go around and tell of the significance of the one who helped him and, and broaden your good reputation. No one was even around to post this. I mean, come on, I, I need somebody to be around to, to take photos of my ministry so that like people can notice this. Serving, serving the seemingly insignificant brings you nothing in return. And that's what Christ says is great in his kingdom. What's the goal? This. You must serve the insignificant for Christ's sake. The goal of kingdom significance, the goal of kingdom ministry, is serving the insignificant for Christ's sake. That's what he says in verse 37. Whoever receives one such child in my name, you're doing it for the cause of Christ. I am serving this child. I'm serving this person that maybe nobody will ever see or know about. Nobody's going to see me doing this kind thing for this person. Because I love Jesus, because that's what Jesus would do in this situation. This is Jesus' heart in meeting a need of somebody. Nobody's around to know it except God. That's what Jesus would be pleased with. So I'm going to go ahead and do this. I'm going to serve in my church. Nobody's around when I'm vacuuming the floors, when I'm cleaning the toilets. It's just me and my, you know, my, air, you know, my uh, earbuds or whatever. But I'm doing this because I love Jesus. No one's around to see you meet that need of the neighbor that had a need or, or to be kind to that person that most people aren't really kind to. It, it's not going to get any social media traction and increase your significance in others' eyes. But if you're doing it in Christ's name, that is what Jesus says is great. Maybe few people know about the need. 
Maybe few people other than yourself can even meet the need that you're aware of. Maybe it's just a little text. Maybe it's a, a, a time over coffee. Maybe it's a conversation. Meeting that financial need. Maybe it is. It's cleaning the church. Maybe it's serving uh, in the nursery. Maybe going up to that other person after church instead of the person that you normally like to hang out with. What about serving people that you don't get to see during the week? You see your family enough, probably during the week. Why not reaching out to those that you won't see the rest of the week? It's denying myself for the sake of others. It's doing that in a way that actually encourages them. You must serve the insignificant for Christ's sake. Let Christ help you see your need for growth in that area. Let him ask you that question. And then let him be the instructor of what is significant. Sometimes when we're, when we're struggling with something, a particular sin struggle, and we see somebody else excelling in that, maybe we shouldn't, but we sometimes think bad about that person. Like, they're so good at that thing that I know that I'm not good at, and I'm kind of jealous of it. We're trying to grow in our servant-mindedness, and we see somebody else excelling, and we kind of don't like it. That's exactly what we see, secondly, here in the next paragraph, verse 38. John says to him, and it's almost like, really, disciples, are you this dense? Like, he just told you about serving people. Okay, we're going to serve people, but if other people don't, well, let's just read. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. He was not following us. It's like, it's like John is saying, okay, Jesus, we ought to be serving but we're a little suspicious of others when they're trying to do it. The self-importance of the disciples is not quite even noticeable to them. They don't even see it. It's like, can you hear yourself talking here? I mean, just earlier up in chapter 9, what's ironic is that the 12 had just been unable to cast a demon out. If you're reading just through, like you would through your Bible, the disciples have just been unable because they didn't have enough faith to cast a demon out. And then when someone else is able to cast a demon out and does so, in fact, in Christ's name, they're looking sideways at it. Like, oh, well, you're not one of us, he says. And, and that's uh, an, another interesting part. Notice the us versus them mentality that John verbalizes for the rest of the disciples. We good disciples, Jesus' special 12, tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. You would think he would have at least said because he wasn't following you, Jesus. But it's like, no, we're, we're all in this together and, and we have the corner on significant ministry. We can have that same mindset sometimes. We can wrongly think that we are the only right servants. Sometimes that's what, we, that's what we evidence in our critical spirit toward others. We can wrongly think that we're the only right servants. That's what John verbalizes in verse 38. Beware of a critical kind of thinking toward other servants of Christ and, and almost wishing that they wouldn't be doing such a good job at what they're doing. Beware talking negatively about other servants of Christ. How damaging is it to talk ill of other legitimately Bible-preaching, gospel-scented churches? Well, I, you know, I mean, you can go to that church if you want to, but I wouldn't if I were you because, well, let me tell you why. 
well, is that the way Christ would have responded to your argument against that church? You're, you're actually wanting to hinder what Christ is doing? Christ built up that church. They are preaching the gospel. They are preaching carefully the Bible text. Be wary of speaking ill of other gospel-preaching churches. Jesus responds very clearly and pretty bluntly to that kind of attitude toward other ministry, toward other people that are serving him in his name. Look in verse 39. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Verse 40. For the one who is not against us is for us. Essentially, no one serving truly for the sake of Christ will soon change to be speaking and working against Christ. Christ is saying, he is, this person over there was truly serving in my name. He's not going to renounce that. He's not going to go back on that soon, right? And so in verse 39, we see this. The fact that Christ appreciates all of his servants. He's saying, John, stop trying to stop what I'm doing in other areas that maybe you're not familiar with or that you don't know about. Christ appreciates all of his servants. The hotter the temperature gets in our anti-Bible, anti-Christ culture, the more important it's going to be that we're not shooting at our own, right? That's why he says what he does in verse 41. For truly I say to you, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. You could say this as you consider other people that are serving God. Those who are willing to help you because you are Christ's are significant to God. Those who are willing to help you because you are Christ's are significant to God. What does it mean to belong to Christ anyway? Because that's, that's the caveat. It's not just anybody that likes what you're doing, um, they get a pass and they're in the kingdom. No, it, it, Christ is careful in how he says this. In verse 41, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ. The only person that could do that sort of thing is one who also belongs to Christ. Someone that knows that there, there's nothing that they can do to earn a position before God. I can't buy my way into the kingdom. I can't earn significance with God. The only thing I've earned is the wages of death. That's, that's what, if, if I want to bring to the table what I'm going to try to get by who I am, I'm only going to get eternal punishment against an eternally, infinitely holy God. The one who places his faith and trust in Christ alone to save him, Christ, that person belongs to Christ. And if you know a friend that belongs to Christ and you seek to meet that need, Christ says, if you're doing that, you by no means will lose your reward, eternal dividends. And so be wary of casting uh, somebody else in a negative light who belongs to Christ, who is seeking to meet gospel needs. It's interesting, one day not too long from this very instance, many of these disciples are going to understand this concept in a new way through the persecution of the early church. Those associated with them as disciples would be really risking a lot to maintain that association with them. That's why the, 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 the baptism was so significant. 
Baptism wasn't just a nice little formality that they did in the confines of a, a small church that nobody else saw. Baptism was public. I'm actually willing to identify with these people who are getting persecuted for doing what I'm doing. And so baptism was a very significant thing, a public identification with Christ. In Hebrews, uh, you don't have to turn there for sake of time, in chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews commends these believers for actually associating with true Christians. Chapter 10, near the end of the chapter, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. The writer of Hebrews is saying, way to go for not caring about who you're seen with, especially because you're being seen and helping Christ followers. You're seeing people in your own church taken and, and, and murdered because of their connection with Christ, and you're still being willing to associate with them. Verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison. To go to prison and help out somebody shows that you kind of like them. And what are they in prison for? For believing the very same thing that you do about Christ. The writer of Hebrews commends that. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Christ is saying that you must appreciate other servants of Christ. And you notice how this can sometimes go against our natural tendency to want to be significant. We want to be the only ones who are right about a particular thing. We want to be the ones that, well, you can go over there, but I'll give you 18 reasons why that's a bad idea. As opposed to thinking, well, what is God's grace doing in that person? There's so much that God's using them in unique ways that I'm probably deficient in, if I'm honest. It goes against our natural tendency, and Christ knew that. Back uh, a few years ago in World War II, there was an evil that was spreading, right, with an evil man leading it. And the only way that that evil was going to be retarded and stopped was if nations that otherwise didn't agree on much of anything had to get, got together. The, you know, you had a France, uh, the, the, just people probably didn't like their Frenchness, right? Um, there was Russia, who we wouldn't agree with with much of their view of human life. They would go on to do many bad things to themselves. Great Britain, America, uh, they all had to get together. But if they were going to let pride get in the way, well, <laughs> we're not going to act like we like you because you, I've got a bunch of reasons why the way you do government is really dumb, right? And no, they had to swallow the pride in order for the ultimate enemy to be defeated. Christ appreciates those who are his servants, and so must we. we we've got to beware the pride in our own hearts that would want to disparage or, or hurt other servants of Christ, putting others down so we can seem spiritually superior instead counter that sinful tendency by mentioning God's grace evident in that person, in that person's ministry. Maybe it's another gospel preaching church. Maybe you wouldn't attend it and you would have biblical reasons why you would disagree with how they do church or what that looks like for them. But what's your attitude toward it? Would you just rather, they're just, they're just dumb for doing that way. Why haven't they come around to the truth yet? I, it'd be better if they just fold it. That's not Christ's attitude toward a work that Christ is doing through that church. 
And if we are more consistently appreciating other servants of Christ, if we are more consistently serving the insignificant for Christ's sake, you know what the result would be? The result would be what Christ points out in the last verse of this chapter. In verse 50 of Mark 9, Christ concludes with this same discussion. Verse 50, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. Essentially talking about influence for Christ. And be at peace with one another. That's kind of what started this whole thing. The disciples were arguing about their own significance. And Christ concludes this whole section. The result of you serving the insignificant for Christ's sake, the result of you appreciating other servants of Christ is going to look like greater influence for Christ and it's going to look like greater peace and harmony within a church family. Kingdom greatness looks like serving others. You must serve the insignificant for Christ's sake. You must appreciate other servants of Christ. Those glory days, those, those tastes that you have that are superior to others, your accomplishments, your spirituality, when tempted to somehow increase your significance in others' eyes, whatever measure you want to take, when you're tempted to try to increase your significance in others' eyes, stop. Think, is that really serving them well at all? To try to basically draw the attention back to my own awesomeness? No. How about trying to draw their attention not to you and how you are significant, but to Christ and how Christ is significant. Increase their opinion of Jesus through your kindness. That's what godly ministry looks like. True servant-hearted ministry is not going to look in, it's not going to result in people thinking better of you. It's going to result in people thinking better of Jesus. God, that was so kind of you to meet that need through that person. That person saw the need. You probably drew attention to it somehow to them. You've been so kind to me through that person's kindness. That's what godly servant-mindedness to the insignificant looks like. And that, in turn, would be truly significant in Christ's kingdom, meeting that insignificant or significant need to that person that probably won't be able to help you or that nobody else will know about. God appreciates that. We need to commit ourselves to more consistently serving the insignificant for Christ's sake. And, and, and appreciating what other servants of Christ are doing for Christ's sake. Let's ask for God's help to do that.